All right, please take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Timothy 6. Today we come to our final message in 1 Timothy. We've spoken for several weeks with our brief hiatus last week uh, where we contemplated the character of God. Before that, we had spoken for several weeks about the nature of material possessions. We considered the necessity of contentment, the danger of the mindset which would seek wealth and material things in this world over the things of the world that is to come, the warning that they that will be rich will fall into temptation and a snare, that, that the love of money is the root of all evil, then that, that call that the man of God would flee these things, that the man of God would position himself to the things of the world that, are, that is to come, and particularly there we recognize that call to be for the minister, but then, of course, broadening it out to all of us. And today we round out this teaching. There, there's one more thing, in many ways a contrast, as we see the call for the man of God to flee these things. Paul is going to contrast that with those who have many goods in this world. And what the minister is to be teaching those people as it relates to stewardship of the things that God had gi has given them. And that's going to be the primary focus of our time. You notice the title of the sermon, Giving. The long and short of the message is, those that have need to give. And that is what we're going to dig into in our time together as we seek to understand the final exhortation of Paul to Timothy here in 1 Timothy 6. So the Bible says in verse 17, if you're there in 1 Timothy 6, Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. The exhortation of verse 17 begins with a concept which we've already considered fairly well in our other messages. And as we begin, let, let me mention the direct relevance of this message. Our church is by no means on the high end of the economic spectrum, uh, not for our country, not for our region. Uh, to that end, we might say, oh, okay, this, this doesn't really apply to me because I'm not one of those who is rich in this world. But let me remind you that, um, and we've said this throughout, that if you live in the United States, it's, it's fairly likely that you are one who is rich in this world, right? Uh, you may not be rich in, in this world as it relates to one who, uh, as it relates to the median income in the United States or, uh, or, or even necessarily in our region, but um, if you make over $32,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of earners in the world. And the median income of earners in the world is about $7,000 a year. So we, though we may not be rich in comparison to the guy next door or in comparison to the people on TV who are running for elections or whatnot, we uh, can probably pretty safely apply these principles to ourselves um, and not feel uh, any sort of contradiction in doing so. You and I not only abound in bare necessities, but we, we truly do abound in so much more even compared to others in our own country, though we may not be rich, when compared to the world around us, we, we are quite well. And the call unto the rich in this world and to those who have an abundance of material possessions is twofold. Paul says, first off, charge them that are rich in this world 
that they be not high-minded, arrogant, lofty in mind, not seeking yourselves above those who have not, not determining your own worth by comparing yourselves to others, not looking down at others with some measure of self-superiority. And this is a trait which we would generally consider to be a temptation among those who are labeled in society as rich. Uh, though most of us can consider ourselves, within light of what I just described, to be rich in this world, the idea of arrogance, lofty-mindedness as it relates to material possessions is generally found among those which we might call, it's a mindset, um, a, a, that we might call an elitist mindset. The mindset that is tempted to grow in those who have much and who can begin to feel that somehow because they have much, this makes them better than others. And so because they're better than others, they should be entitled to added deference or added respect, added consideration simply by virtue of their economic status. And while there may not be many among us as it relates to our economic status who would perhaps carry with us that elitist mentality, um, it can crop up in anyone's life, can it not? In any number of ways. You drive by the guy on the corner asking for money, or you're presented with the need of another and you form in your own mind a superiority of thought, presuming to judge their circumstances or your relationship to those circumstances, assuming that somehow because they are where they are, they must intrinsically have something wrong with them. They must inherently be uh, a bum or be lazy because of the economy that we have right now and because of the circumstances within which they find themselves. And we can be tempted to place ourselves into a mindset where, though we may not know their circumstances, we are, are willing to impose our judgments upon their circumstances and thus form, in some way, shape, or form, this sort of a mindset, this sort of an element of, well, if you just did this or that, then you wouldn't be where you are, so I'm not going to help you. A good example of this sort of thing was in the hierarchy system that was back in the day in Victorian England. In Victorian England, there would be uh, elites, aristocrats, and they would have very large estates. And within this large manor, they would have any number of domestic servants. And within the scope or the context of those domestic servants, there would be a very, very defined system, a very, very defined class system or hierarchy within the, the, the context of those domestic servants. The stewards were at the top of that hierarchy. And then you'd have the upper staff, which were the butlers and the housekeepers and the cooks and the valets. And then you'd have the lower staff. Those would be the footmen, the chambermaids, the nursemaids, the kitchen maids, and such. And while everyone within the context of the Lord's Manor was a servant, higher servants would look down on lower servants because of the manner of their servitude. Among one another, there was a class system, a hierarchy. Those in higher ranks would, while being servants themselves, carry a distinctly elitist attitude toward the domestic servants that were in lower standing in the household. This is what I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm talking about. That's a good example of what I'm talking about. You don't have to be the lord of the manor to have an elitist attitude as it relates to your position. 
You might very well be one of the servants of the manor, but you're a servant in a higher class than that servant, and therefore you're better than them. And this is the warning. This is the mindset. And the first charge that Paul exhorts Timothy to do is, to, is that those who have things in this world would not be high-minded about the things that you have, would not place yourself on a pedestal, would not look down at others for what you have that they do not. That they would recognize, much to the contrary, particularly in the church, their equality in the Lord. Paul describes this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. That within the, the context of the church, which is the context within which Paul is speaking here, as he charges Timothy to charge the, those that are rich in this world, don't place yourself higher in priority or value in your mind simply because of the things that you have. Don't lower people in your estimation simply because of the things that they don't. And this is an important concept. And it's the very first line of defense, this mindset. It's the very first thing that we need to be guarded about as it relates to whatever degree of material possessions we do or do not have and how we interact with one another and this specifically within the context of the church. It does not matter how much money you have when it comes to the things of the Lord. The Lord can use the pauper as he can use the king. One of the things that uh, is very important to me when I speak to people in the jail is that the believers in the jail understand this concept. I was talking to uh, a young man this past Wednesday and this came up and we were talking about the nature of being in Christ and of, of spiritual growth and that people grow at different rates and that the rate of spiritual growth is not necessarily about how, uh, how well read you are or, um, or, or uh, how, many, how, how much access you have to various resources that there can be spiritual growth in any man to whatever degree that he is willing to exercise faith. And I looked across from him and I said, if you're a believer and I'm a believer, then we can both grow at the same rate. Uh, it, there's no difference in that you're on that side of the table and I'm on this side of the table. You're in Christ, I'm in Christ. Uh, there is no bond nor free in Christ. And, and uh, we are brothers in Christ if that is the case. And that's the mindset here. That as you look at me and I look at you, we're not judging one another on economic status. We're not giving preferential treatment within the church to people because of economic status. And so the first exhortation is that we be not high-minded. Second, he calls on Timothy to exhort the rich in this world that they not trust in those uncertain riches, but rather to trust in the God who has given them those things to enjoy. We've spoken at this point quite adequately in our previous messages on this. The fact that money does not bring happiness, money does not bring contentment, money, possessions, the things of this earth are uncertain and they are fleeting. To put my trust in the things of this earth is to build my house upon a foundation of sand. It could be pulled away at any moment. Whether that's putting my trust in money, whether that's putting my trust in things, whether that's putting my trust in other people, whether that's putting my trust in institutions. If, you're, if, if, you're, if all of your trust is in this church, 
you're putting your, your trust on a shaky foundation. Now, I hope and pray that this church will be faithful and consistent for years to come. But you should not have your trust. You should not be rooting your identity, your trust, your stability in this church, in me, in your parents, in government, in money, in doctors, in things. Those foundations, they're hel- uh, these things, they're helpful, they're fine, they're not evil, but they cannot be the foundation of our trust. As it would relate to them that are rich in the world, Paul says, exhort them not to trust in those riches because that is, as we've talked before, a temptation. We know that God uses money. We know that God uses people. We know that he uses material things, but our faith, our hope, our security does not rest in what we have, but it rests in the one who gave it to us. Our expectation is not upon what we could have in this world, but upon what the one who can provide all things and supply all my needs can do for me. And to whatever degree God has in his goodness chosen to bless me with material prosperity, chosen to bless me with the things of this world, to that degree I enjoy them, and I enjoy them as extensions of God's goodness and God's gifts to me. This mindset this mindset of not trusting in uncertain riches, it guards us from several things. First, it guards us from discontentment. Because discontentment is me saying, if only I had that, if only I had more, if only my health was better, if only my, my bank account was larger, if only I had that kind of a relationship with my spouse, if only I had that kind of a relationship with my parents, if only I had siblings, if only I didn't have siblings, whatever it might be. The recognition that I'm not trusting in the things of this world, I'm not placing my happiness on the things of this world, but on the one who gave me those things. And so if he gave it to me, then I, I know he, he chose it. It guards me from discontentment. It also guards me from envy from wanting the things that others have. And it guards me from covetousness. But more to the point, as it relates to those who have much in this world, this mindset guards us from the temptation to trust in our wealth, to trust in our society's wealth, rather than the God who has promised to meet our needs. There's another very important thing that this mindset does for us as well. If we do assume this careful mindset in which we're not high-minded, and we regard all of the things which we have in this world to be from God as gifts from God, and we're fully persuaded that to whatever degree we are living, we are living out of the abundance of God's goodness, not only are we going to have a measure of contentment, but we are go- it's going to be much easier to take what we have and, and submit it to the Lord. And here's why that's so important. Because if God saw fit to take it away, you wouldn't crumble. And if God does not see fit to take it away, then you have a very unique opportunity. And that unique opportunity is that you are deeply compelled because what you have is submitted to the Lord to use what you have for the Lord. And this is what Paul continues to exhort in 1 Timothy 6. So he says, those that are rich in this world... Carry forward a twofold mindset. First, don't be proud. And second, don't trust in those riches. Rather, trust in the Lord. And if you're trusting the Lord, 
then whether you have this or don't have this, you'll be okay. And the fact that you do have it means that you are recognizing it as an extension of God's tremendous graciousness toward you. It's submitted to the Lord. And if it's submitted to the Lord, then you're going to begin to develop and it's going to be natural for you to develop a desire to use the things that God has given you for his glory. And thus he says in verse 18, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. There's a spiritual call that rests upon those who have been given plenty by God. And the spiritual call, the obligation, if you will, is that they are always ready to share what they have with those who are in need. And this is expressed in a number of ways here. That they do good. Good works is the, the idea of that word. That they be rich in good works. That they be ready to distribute, meaning liberal in the sense of the word, open-handed. That they be willing to communicate. Notice the word communicate here. Remember back in Philippians? We talked about the idea in Philippians of fellowship in the gospel. And we talked about how that word fellowship is regularly used to speak of giving. And it's that word koinonia or koinonos, or in this case, koinonikos. The idea there being to communicate, to be eager to share. The Greek word is very closely related to that one we were studying in Philippians. Very often used by Paul to speak directly to the idea of meeting others' needs, fellowshipping with them in their need. Generosity is a hallmark of the Christian faith. And that for a simple reason. God has given things to us God will continue to give to us. So why would we not be ready to give to others as well? The Bible calls on us to follow Christ, to walk in Christ's footsteps, to do as Christ has done. And the simple formula is this. Freely you have received, freely give. Right? As the Lord has given to you, so you give to others. And this is the call that, the Lord, uh, that those who are rich in this world is charged with. Those who have what they need and, th and then operate in abundance, that they would be ready and willing to give to those that do not have all that they need. And naturally, this principle is not just one found in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, it's found throughout the Word of God, rooted, in fact, in the Old Testament law. So God would command the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7 through 11. If there be any among you a poor man, excuse me, if there be among you a poor man of one of thy brethren within any of thy gates in thy land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not harden thine heart nor shut thine hand from thy poor brother, but thou shalt open thine hand wide unto him and shalt surely lend him sufficient for his need in that which he wanteth. Beware that there be not a thought in thy wicked heart, saying, the seventh year, the year of release, is at hand. And thine eye be evil against thy poor brother, and thou givest him not. And he cry unto the Lord against thee, and it be sin unto thee. Thou shalt surely give him, and thine heart shall not be grieved when thou givest unto him, because that for this thing the Lord thy God 
shall bless thee in all thy works, and in all that thou puttest thine hand unto. For the poor shall never cease out of the land. Therefore I command thee, saying, Thou shalt open thine hand wide unto thy brother, to thy poor, to thy needy in thy land. God calls for the people of Israel here to maintain a soft heart and an open hand to the poor within their land, specifically to their brethren, lending unto him sufficient to meet their need. And, and do take note of that. The initial context of this is not directly to give without any thought of recompense, but rather to lend with the possibility of receiving back, but never expecting to receive it back. And we see this from verse 9, where God warns against a man refusing to give anything unto his brother, specifically because of the seventh year, the sabbatical year, being at hand. That was a year of release. It was a year of release from debts. In that year, in the sabbatical year, debts would be forgiven. And because of this, uh, within the, an economical system where every seventh year debts would be released, you could imagine what that would do to someone who was shrewd, right? They would lend just fine in year one, in year two, in year three. But as you're approaching year three and a half, about halfway through, uh, they'd probably start to tighten up their, their, their money supply and start to be putting their effort into gaining back that which they had lent un, unto the seventh year, right? Because they know that on the seventh year, those debts are released. And so God says, you, you need to have your hand open to the poor. And this doesn't necessarily always mean give without expectation of recompense. A man's going through a hard time. You give to him what he needs. And he says, and then when I get back on my feet, I'll, I'll pay you back. And, and, and that's perfectly within the scope of what God is saying here. But he says, don't allow your heart to be tempted to go to, 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 to be tempted to get selfish and say, I refuse to lend to my brother who is in legitimate need simply because the seventh year is coming. And I know that in that year, I have to release that debt, so I'm not going to give. God says that's the wrong spirit. It's the wrong spirit. God warns against refusing to help a brother in need for such a reason. Rather, God said in verse 10, give to him whether or not he'll ever be able to pay you back, knowing that as you give to him, God will give back to you in return. And this brings another principle which we'll talk about in our application. This really, at the end of the day, has nothing to do with money. Money's, money's the transaction. Money's the, the, the thing that, that I'm using. But, but it has to do with me and God and my brother and what the Lord would have me to do. And notice why because the poor will never cease out of the land. They're, they're always going to be around. There will always be poor people until the day that the Lord makes all things new. So God says, be generous. Open your hand wide, he says. The Proverbs also speak to the principle. Proverbs 11, verse 25. The liberal soul shall be made fat, and he that wanteth shall be watered also, well, excuse me, watereth shall be watered also himself. The idea of the one who gives will also be given to. Proverbs 14, 21, He that despiseth his neighbor sinneth, but he that hath mercy on the poor, happy is he. Proverbs 19, 17, He that hath pity upon the poor lendeth unto the Lord, and that which he hath given will he pay him again. Proverbs 28, 27, He that giveth unto the poor shall not lack, but he that hideth his eyes shall have many a curse. We find in these Proverbs a common theme. God is the giver of all things. And not just to the believer, but to the unbeliever as well. 
And those who fear God will understand that since God is the giver of all things freely, first, as we mentioned already, as I have received, so I ought to give. And second, God is able to make up the difference when I, by faith, maintain an open hand. Is he not? If God would have you to maintain an open hand and you maintain that open hand in faith, God's not going to let you be destitute. Now, this is not a spiritual pyramid scheme that we're talking about here. I've heard this even preached before, whether it be a tithe or whether it be this, just this, this first fruits principle or, or the giving principle that, that, you know, man gave and then the Lord gave him this much and then he gave and now he's a millionaire. Okay, fine. I'm glad that happened for him. That's not any sort of a guarantee in the scriptures any way, shape, or form. You cannot manipulate God into making you a millionaire by tithing or exercising the first fruits principle or by giving. But I'll tell you what, the principle is too clear in the Old Testament to ignore that if I have an open hand, God will take care of me. And we should not ignore it. And this is the result that Paul presents in 1 Timothy 6 as well. Verse 19. As he's continuing to describe, he said in verse 18, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, that ready to distribute, willing to communicate. Verse 19. Laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. When we give, what we are doing is we are, we know God will take care of us, but there's, there's a spiritual thing that's happening here. We're trading material things for eternal things. I'm yielding some of the abundance which God has given me in this life for an abundance which cannot pass away, reserved in heaven for me, an exchange which, by the way, is worth it every time. Let us never forget, Christians, just how important it is in everything to maintain carefully the mindset of the eternal, to remember the promises of life to come. We're really going to emphasize this starting this week in Philippians in our evening service, to reach unto those promises and this should form the, the primary motivation for our actions and for our decisions. This is what it means, is it not? That we would seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But I draw your attention more particularly to this phrase, that they may lay hold upon eternal life. This is the second time in the immediate context of 1 Timothy, that we have seen this phrase. And we mentioned last time that it has nothing to do with the idea of working to earn your salvation, but rather that within each action we do in this life, we're either working in us life by faith, or we're working in us death through sin. So that, as 1 Corinthians 10.31 acknowledges, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, you do all to the glory of God. Everything I do in this life can either be for God's glory or not. I'm either working in my life, in myself, in my spirit, life or death. And the call to lay hold on eternal life is a call to live for that life which is to come to live out the fullest implications of the promises, to lay up for ourselves gold, silver, and precious stones in heaven against the day of judgment, that in that day 
the day that we do enter into everlasting life, that it may be filled with the riches of the abundance of the rewards that our faith has purchased for us in this life. So that when our Lord tells us in Matthew chapter 6 to lay up treasure in heaven, and as I just mentioned, Paul exhorts in 1 Corinthians 3 that we would build upon the foundation of our faith gold, silver, and precious stones. And as Jesus speaks in Matthew 25 about the servants who each had been given a talent, representative of the things that God has given us on this earth, and that we then choose what we do with them, and how we can invest them either in the things of eternity or bury them effectively. That in all of these exhortations, we recognize that there's some measure of reward on the other side of eternity and that Christ and the apostles have called us to seek to it with every fiber of our being. And this is what Paul is describing here as eternal life. So that though we recognize that eternal life is a state wherein to all who believe in Jesus Christ by grace through faith will enter at the moment of their death, we also recognize that there's a definitive variation in the nature of how we enter into that eternal life on the basis of my investment in this life into eternity. What does that all mean? as far as our disposition, disposition going into eternity. What does it mean that we're laying up gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble? Well, we know that the contrast there is that when the fire of God's judgment falls upon it, the only things that will remain are the gold, silver, and precious stones. What does it mean when Paul states that there's a crown of life that's waiting for those who love his appearing, for, for those who are faithful? What are those cities that that Lord gave to the Servants who increase their talents through investment. Babel doesn't really tell us. We speculate that those cities might have something to do with authority in the millennial kingdom, right? We speculate about those crowns that we'll cast at the Lord's feet. But the Bible doesn't really tell us what these rewards are. But what it does make very, very clear is that we, if, if we have any faith at all, we, we want them. We want those rewards. It will be worth it. And to whatever degree we have to set aside the things of this life for the rewards of the things to come, it will be worth it in that time. And one of the ways that we do this, one of the ways that we invest into eternal life is by faith, having an open hand toward those who need. We'll come back to that in our application. I do want to finish the book today. I was tempted to write one more sermon based upon 20 and 21, but, but I chose not to. Verses 20 and 21 say this, in conclusion, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. The last bit is very personal to Paul. The book finishes as it began. Recall back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul exhorted Timothy to teach sound doctrine, not giving heed to fables or to endless genealogies, the things which minister questions rather than godly edifying in faith. 
we see a very similar exhortation here so that the book is, is kind of bookended. Bookended by these warnings against false doctrine, by these warnings about faithfulness. To keep that which is entrusted to him, that being the church, to avoid foolish words, to ignore opposition of those who claim knowledge that they simply don't possess. And that because any number of ministers have been diverted from these things in the faith, Paul is exhorting Timothy to stay focused and to stay faithful. And then we have a very abrupt end to this letter, somewhat unique for Paul. Normally, he speaks of the people that, that he's with. So-and-so greets you. Uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. And all of these various statements. He, he is much more abrupt here. And the point of the end of the letter is this. The church is under leadership. Leadership matters. This leadership comes with true and tremendous responsibility. The leader of the church must be a buffer for his people against the errors of this world. No minister should take his duties to his church lightly. The church operates in the realm of the souls of men. The stakes could not be higher than that. It could not be higher than that. There's, there's pretty high stakes when you're an employer and you have the jobs of the people under you and their lives and their livelihoods. They've got kids They've got grandkids. They've got family to support. And, and you're the boss. And you're trying to make decisions, not just for yourself to earn your business money, but you're trying to make payroll, right? And there's, there's, there's a weight on one's shoulders. There's a weight on one's shoulders when you're a politician. And you are seeking to uh, lead people. And, and, and you're seeking to make decisions that are best for your community and how to spend the money uh, that, that, that the taxpayers have, have have put into the coffers and, and how best to keep uh, things rolling in, in your city and, and what, what are the priorities that you need. And there's a weight there. But the stakes of the souls of men, those are high stakes. The pitfalls are great. And as you might imagine, the primary message in this is, is at least in this body, is to me. As your minister, I have a tremendous responsibility as it relates to you. And without attempting to lessen the gravity of this exhortation from me, allow me to broaden it out to you. Remember that the church is not a game. Church is not a social club. I hope that you find within the church fellowship, people that you can relate to, enjoy spending time with on that level. But the church is the body of Christ. We come and we have a wonderful time of fellowship and we hear the word of God and we grow and we give and we serve and we love and we need to understand that what we're doing here has eternal consequences. We need to understand that there are consequences in the hearts of our children for what we do here and what we take from here and, and impose upon our week and our lives. And that should not compel us into some sort of fear by which we're crippled, say, oh, well, if the church is that much responsibility, I don't want that responsibility. I'm not going to church anymore, right? That, that, that's not the point. But it should compel us to care. We're going to talk about this tonight in Philippians chapter 2. It ought to compel us to care for one another. And sometimes, you know what that means? That means we've got to get over ourselves. And, and that's not fun. And, you know, people are kind of strange. 
And you look at them and you say, really? I mean, I'm fine, I, I'm fine with me. You know, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm happy. I'm content. Why should I add your troubles to my mix? Right? Why should I add your problems to my mix? Why should I have to deal with your quirks and oddities? Why should I have to, to go through the process of, of ministering to you? That's a lot of work. I mean, you, but the church is important. What we do here is important. What we do here has eternal consequences. So we ought to care for one another. We ought to care for what God thinks too. And as I mentioned, we're going to talk about this heavily over the next several weeks in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says that we are to assume the mind of Christ. Let each esteem other better than themselves. That's quite a call. But that's the church. That's our call. That's your call. And that's the kind of gravity that Paul ends this letter with. Okay, I, I leave you there. Uh, that could have been a message in itself. It's not going to be. I apologize for kind of bringing you into giving and then out of giving, and now I'm bringing you back into giving. But let's, let's refocus on giving here in our application today. Four points on giving. Point number one, you are given so that you may give. This is, this is very plain and simple. You are given. Say, no, pastor, I worked for my money. No, God gave you that. God gave you that. Yeah, I'm not saying you didn't work hard. I'm not saying you didn't have to make sacrifices. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is God gave you health. God gave you ability. God gave you a mind. God gave you circumstances. God gave you connections. God, God provides for you. God sustains you. And, and that's a fundamental aspect of the Christian mindset. You need to understand that. And by the way, you say, well, God provides for me, but the unbeliever has it too. Yeah, God, God, God's given it to them too. The Bible says God makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. God makes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. Just because they don't regard it as a gift, just because they think that it's all natural chance processes, doesn't mean God isn't giving them something. God is the one that gives us what we have. Don't lose sight of that. We considered not long ago in Ephesians 4 a principle that we call the replacement principle that we're to put off the old man and put on the new. Paul describes this new man in verses 22 through 32. And within this section of putting off and putting on, God, uh, Paul, Paul gives this exhortation uh, to the new man. He says in Ephesians 4, verse 28, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. Notice the contrast here. He says, don't steal but rather work. Okay, that, that, that makes sense. Don't steal, but rather work. And you know what we'd normally say? Don't steal, but rather work so that you can live and not have to steal from others. But that's not what Paul says, is it? Paul says, don't steal, but rather work so that you can give to others. Not just so that you can live yourself and you don't have to steal, but rather give so that you can give. Instead of taking, you're giving. Paul references a contrast between those who would take from others that which they have earned, a natural mindset of selfishness and envy which pervades the world around us. We are in a time of uniqueness toward this end as, as socialism becomes more of a topic of conversation in our politics. Winston Churchill once said that socialism is the doctrine of envy, and it's absolutely true. 
I'll let you look into that on your own. But the fact is, selfishness and envy pervade this world. And in direct contrast to that, Paul says, your mindset is to be earn that you may have to give. Now we know that working is also so that we don't burden others. 2 Thessalonians 3 tells us if a man does not work, he should not eat. So we have that principle as well. But Christ's mindset is that I give to those in need of that which I have earned. And this is Christ's way. I labor so that I may have to give. This command is narrowed in, chapter, in Romans chapter 12, verses 10 through 13, where the Bible says, Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. Paul narrows his focus here, this being the most natural but not the only context in which our generosity should be most evidently manifest to the body of Christ. And we find a call that we would distribute to the necessity of the saints, that those in our body who have a legitimate need, not driven by some neglect, we'll talk about that in a moment, ought to be able to have that need satisfied within the church, either by distribution of resources or by joyful hospitality. This is echoed by Paul in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them that are of the household of faith. Galatians chapter 6, speaking within the context of giving, I encourage you to look that up um, if, if you doubt. These principles are reflected in Paul's writings very specifically as he took a collection to give to the needy saints of Jerusalem. Time would fail us to go from reference to reference considering all of the times Paul either exhorted giving to the needs of the saints or commended men for giving to the needs of saints. But it is we see that giving drives the very core of what it means to be a believer and especially helping others within the community of faith. Many would seek to use this biblical principle as a means by which to push, put to, to push within the church um, this concept, as I just mentioned, of socialism. That because we are to give to those that have need and because we are to help the helpless, that we ought to be on the side of institutionalizing the support. But let me just make one more statement in regard to this before we move on, simply because it's so relevant today. The call in the scriptures is for a man to labor that he might have to give to those who need. And let me, let me help, let me think through this with me. This is a philosophy of giving based upon generosity, love, and obedience to my fellow man. And particularly for my brothers and sisters in Christ. The call of socialism is not a philosophy of giving. It's a philosophy of taking. It's an institution taking from those who have labored and earned in order that the institution may give it to others. It's a philosophy of envy, as I said, not of generosity. In the New Testament, the Bible says that the church had all things in common as each man willingly gave of that which he had to those which were in need. The church never forcibly took that which was not theirs in order to do the work. Never. Never once. And if they had they would fundamentally undercut every spiritual virtue that giving espouses. Don't get this mixed up. 
Don't allow our society to misuse the Bible to push this destructive ideology because this socialism is a misread. It is a, it is a mockery. It is a counterfeit of biblical Christianity. It is biblical Christianity without Christ. It is an attempt to mimic, and this is, this is what atheism and, and, and by extension communism have always done, all the way to the very attempt to bring in the kingdom of heaven, right? To beat the swords into, shou- into plowshares. It is an attempt to strip the element of spirituality of Christianity from the virtues of Christianity and then to impose them upon humanism and to say through humanism we can reach the same result as Christ has called us to reach and it doesn't work. It cannot work. And so within the institution, see because no man outside of Christ would ever really live in this philosophy themselves, right? And so the institution must forcibly take from man that which is man's and then distribute. Unfortunately, because it has to go through the institution, most of the money stays in the institution because man is inherently corrupt. God's model is I work, I labor, and then I give of what I have to others. And in doing so, I am worshiping the Lord. In doing so, I am helping my brother, and in doing so, I am obeying the scriptures. Moving on. Point number two. Don't allow your fear of fraud to cripple your open hand. Giving is not easy in this day. Maybe it's never been easy. There's so many people who are entitled, aren't there? Who expect and even demand to be cared for by others in this day who will take what they're given and they'll waste it either because they think they can or they simply never learned better. The number of young people who have grown up never being asked to work or work hard, never having had to earn anything that they've ever had, and even being purposefully protected or shielded from having to work or having to earn is very high today. And this can put the church in kind of a hard spot, can't it? Because we want to help people. We long to help people. We want to be obedient to the scriptures. But nobody likes to be taken advantage of. Nobody likes to give of that which they have earned to someone who's just going to waste it. Or to see your giving as an excuse for someone else to be lazy. And to enable someone to live in laziness is to, in fact, enable them to disobey scripture, isn't it? 2 Thessalonians 3, 7-15, I already alluded to it. For yourselves know how you ought to follow uh, us, for we behaved not ourselves disorderly among you, neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you, not because we had not power, but to make ourselves an ensample unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing, and if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So here we have it. We are to be circumspect, to exhort men to work hard for the things that they have. And if any man walk in a disorderly manner, 
not working, devoting their time and energy to that which does not profit, that man is to be exhorted to change his behavior, and if he will not work, then there is no means by which he should be provided for. But these things are never that simple, are they? People who want to work but struggle finding, keeping a job for various reasons, maybe even character reasons, People who don't understand the value of money and so don't realize just how far a few dollars would go if only they'd stop buying fast food and start buying beans and rice instead. A person who comes up and they're asking for money but they're playing on their smartphone at the same time. And there's a disconnect, right? It, they, they, don't, they, they don't even see a contradiction there. And that complicates matters. doesn't it? Scattered among them are people who really don't care, who have no interest, who will milk you for all they can get, and the moment that you stop, they'll go milk someone else. And the conflict is enough to drive people to simply stop giving, or to make the qualifications for aid so cumbersome that very few would ever qualify. And this is a tragedy. No one wants to be taken advantage of, but sometimes... We have to take some risks. And maybe what that person needs even more than your money is your time investing in them. Right? Give a man a fish, he eats for a day. Teach a man to fish, he eats for a lifetime. Maybe what that person really needs is to be taught. But that takes work. That takes time. That takes emotional capital. That takes, takes a lot. Far better that I would be taken advantage of in some capacity than I would close my fist to the needs of others. May I say it this way? If I'm going to err in one way or the other in these circumstances that are difficult to judge, I want to err on the side of generosity. Now, I do not say that. Again, we've already talked about the principle. If a man does not work, he should not eat. If I try to teach a man a fish and he's over there sleeping in the grass while I'm fishing, then I've done my part. He's not listening. But if I'm going to come to an impasse, a point where I don't know quite what to do, a point where I can't tell whether or not this person is genuine or not, a point where I am, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, I don't want to be taken advantage of, and I might be taken advantage of, but I might not be taken advantage of, I want to err on the side of having the open hand. Not only because of the importance the scriptures have placed on this, but also because of our third point here. If you give in love as unto the Lord, you can't lose. You can't lose. Now, I, the reason why we want to be careful is because we don't want to enable. Because if I'm enabling a man who's lazy and who's entitled, I'm damaging him, right? I'm damaging him. But on my end, if I'm acting in good faith, I, I can't lose. <laughs> if someone takes advantage of me, having done my due diligence and believing them to be truly in need, or... Be, having done my due diligence, unable to know either way, but being willing to have an open hand because I'm not sure either way, or due to circumstances, being unable to complete that due diligence and just needing to, to, to make a decision, and so you give, and it turns out that maybe they weren't as worthy, weren't as needy as they said, or their decisions leave something to be desired, or, or whatever the case may be, here's what you know. You did your best. 
you gave as unto the Lord. And when you're a cheerful giver, as unto the Lord, when you yield the things of this earth in good faith to one that you believe has a need, no matter what the outcome, you've acted in a manner which pleases the Lord. You have sought to lay hold on eternal life. You have exercised faith. You have pleased God. If they're lying, God can take care of that, can't he? If they've deceived you, God can take care of that, can't he? And if you gave with an open hand of your abundance, regardless of what they do with that gift, you can expect that God will take care of you, won't he? And so these principles are irrefutable. Those principles are the very essence of the scripture. And I, I, I never want to make that an excuse to enable someone. But when I have a decision to make, when things are complicated, far better for me to err on the side of giving than to withhold my hand from those who need simply because I'm afraid that they might be taking advantage of me. And so this is more about faith and obedience than it is about economics, right? And so the final question, do you believe these things? These things are not easy to consider, but we need to consider them and we need to set our hearts upon them. And I ask you if you believe these things because it does not follow that just because you agree that something is true, that you're actually going to exercise it in faith. James speaks to this in James chapter 2 when he says in verse 14, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? James, and we've spoken about this before, and I wouldn't bring it up except he goes right into giving after this. James is not speaking here about faith into everlasting life, faith into salvation here. He's saying that a man must produce works. He's not saying, excuse me, that a man must produce works in order to be saved. This would go directly contrary to the teaching in the New Testament, directly contrary to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. James is speaking here not about salvation, but about the nature of faith itself. Faith presupposes works. We talked about that in Hebrews 11. Or as we might say, if you have faith, then works will be the natural product of your faith. So your faith is justified by your works. While no man can say that he must work in order to produce saving faith. That's not true. We are justified by faith, but our faith is justified by works. It is a spiritual impossibility for me to be justified by my works. But it is just as true that if I have faith, faith will inevitably produce in me a subset of works based upon that faith. So if I put my faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ to save me from my sins, this faith will inevitably, inevitably produce a subset of works, namely, in, in, in the case of, of saving faith, belief, the subset of works that that produces is that I'll stop attempting to earn my way to heaven. If I put my faith in the promises of God, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord, that will produce a specific subset of works. And the specific subset of works that is produced, if I place my faith in that promise, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord, is that I will stop seeking vengeance on my enemies because I'll leave it to the Lord, right? So I'll stop being resentful and bitter and angry. And if I put my faith in the teaching of Scripture in relation to the importance of giving, of having an open hand to the poor, and particularly being of a help and a blessing to those who are believers, then it will produce a certain subset of works. 
And that subset of works is found in James 4, 2, verses 15 and 16, which is why I started here. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? My faith in God's word, if I believe what God has said about giving, if I believe what God has said about distributing to the necessity of the saints, if I have faith in it, not just that I acknowledge it to be true, but if I have faith in it, it will inevitably produce something. And what it will inevitably produce is a determination not just to look at my brother or sister in Christ and say, I'll be praying for you, be warmed and filled. I hope that you find what you need, but rather to dig into my pocket and say, how can I help you? How can I help you? So James says, what good is faith that doesn't actually produce substance? What good is it for me to wish well a brother or sister in need when I have what I, what, what, what I need, what, what, what I, when, excuse me, when I have what they need and I don't give it to them? When I have and I have to give and I don't give it. So deeply built into the mind of God is this principle that we read in 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Hereby we perceive the love of God. Hereby perceive we the love of God, excuse me. Because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's goods and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion for him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and truth. How can I say that the love of God is abiding in me? And again, this is not speaking of salvation, but the manifest fruit of one who is abiding in Christ. That's the context of 1 John. If, you, if, you, if you're concerned about these, if you're concerned about James 2, if, you, if you're confused, if you're confused about 1 John, come see me. We'll talk about it. How can I say that I'm walking in fellowship with the Lord if I have what my brother needs that he does not have and I cut him off from my compassion. We must not just love in word. We must not just love in tongue. If we're going to be consistent believers, we must love in deed and in truth. The principle is clear. The working out of this principle can be complicated and confusing at times, can't it? But let us seek always to an open hand. Let us strive always to help those who are in need. Let us be a generous people. Let us be a people ready to distribute, willing to communicate. We are given so that we may give. Let us give with gladness, echoing the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly, or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.